This episode of Uncontrolled Airspace is made possible by the support of our generous listeners. For over seven years, we've been thrilled to enjoy the financial support and useful feedback of our awesome listeners. For information on how you can join the conversation in our forums, put something in the UCAP tip jar, or even become an underwriter of a UCAP episode, visit the UCAP homepage at uncontrolledairspace.com. Clear. But it's just airplanes, so it's not, it's it's, not really no this is This is the best seat in the house. It's, it's got a runway in the front yard. <laughs> could this be it, Jeb? Could, could it? Could it? Could it? Did, well, they, did they find it? There's a lot of stuff down there in that ocean. Yeah, I know. There's a, and there's a lot of stuff that no human has ever really ever seen before. Uh, well, yeah, okay. So inconsistent with the Indian Ocean seabed doesn't do a whole lot for me. What are we talking about? We're talking about um, Malaysia Airlines or Malaysia Airline 370, excuse uh-huh, me. Uh-huh, yep. Um, everybody calls it MH370. That's the, uh, excuse me, the IATA code. Uh, ICAO code is MAS370. But anyway, of course, they're still looking for this 777 that disappeared back in March. Um, they're doing all kinds of, of neat stuff, scanning the ocean floor in, in, in the area that they think the airplane went down. And again, just kind of refresh everybody's memory. The only re- evidence they have that the airplane went down in that general area is a series of, of uh, or a set of um, handshake data between the airplane and uh, a right. satellite. And due to you know due to the Doppler effect, basically, they were able to determine or at least deduce where they think the airplane went. So there really uh, are people still looking that, for this. Thing. Yeah, there, there really are people still looking for this. They will find it. They will find. They keep in mind also that no trace of this airplane, and or anybody on it, has ever been found since yeah. March. I know. I you know. I mean, on the subject of they'll find it eventually. I just have one word for you, Amelia Earhart. Um, but <laughs> they might find Amelia Earhart first. Yes, I that's what know. I guess. That's what I'm but saying. They, they will find this airplane or some portions of it. Yeah. So now, well, so they found something that's in on the bo- sea bottom that well, doesn't look like the sea bottom. My question is, how do they know? Yeah, I know, right? Yeah, okay. David, you were going to say something. What? Well, to give you an idea of how remote and unexplored this particular part of the Indian Ocean is, uh, they describe it as an area that was formed a hundred million years ago when Australia and Antarctica were separating. They were the last remaining parts of a big single continent that the scientists have come to call Pangaea. Well, in the survey work that they've done looking for Flight 370, they've discovered new volcanoes there that are almost 7,000 feet tall that were unknown to to humanity before they did this survey looking for this airplane. So, you know, the idea that they're finding new stuff in an area that they haven't really been able to penetrate before, no big surprise. If you can miss something 7,000 feet tall, imagine how easy it's going to be to miss debris. M- miss something with 70 feet so, tall. So you're trying to tell me that we're getting, like, good spinoffs from the 370 crash? Scientifically, yeah. That's you know, the, te- like, the technology exists. It's just never, no one's ever had a reason to scan this particular portion of the ocean floor before. Well, okay. so in, At least not in this detail. Yeah. So approximately <coughs> where is this sort of in relation to, I don't know what, Australia? Give me a clock. Go uh, to Australia and then fly west. 
in, uh, west. So we're at nine o'clock yeah. from Australia. Nine o'clock from Australia. All right. It, like David uh, said, that's this like in the middle of nowhere out there. That's just, yeah. There's nothing there. That's a lot of ocean, and that's a nasty ocean too. If it you is. pay any attention to maritime stuff, that's the Southern Ocean is like, you know, of all the crazy oceans in the world, that's the one. Um, it's not and, a place where you want to go and try and do a recovery operation for starters. Well, and it, it, it geologically, it's one of the younger parts of the of the ocean. Uh, and uh, you could say it's, still, it's, a, still, it, it's a work in progress. It's an unruly break, young ocean, right? Yeah. When continents break up, you know, there's just all kinds of fallout. Breaking, <laughs> yeah, breaking right. up is hard to do. <laughs> there you okay. go. All right. Welcome, folks. To Thank you, Neil Sadaka. <laughs> to Uncontrolled Airspace, the General Aviation Podcast. Uh, I'm Jack Hodgson. I'm coming to you uh, from uh, from Papa Papa, New Hampshire, and uh, where it's uh, fall has taken hold. And uh, we're actually a little bit past uh, a peak of foliage, is my personal estimation here in Papa Papa, southern New Hampshire. And uh, um, in fact, we've had a storm the last couple of days, and a lot of leaves are falling. That's sort of the clear sign that you're past prime. You had a storm? Yes, it's been you, raining. You had a storm. What? What? <laughs> it's been raining cats and dogs. No, here. if I, you look at the radar, we had a nor'easter that just wasn't cold enough to snow. I mean, it was it was you know big uh, sort of you know rotation and uh, and uh, nor'easters are those those weather patterns in the North Atlantic uh, during which you do not want to be on a boat. Yeah, well, that's or, true too. Or in an airplane, right? Yeah. And yeah. on shore, when it's cold enough, it drives uh, you know wet cold air from the northeast uh, on shore, and it turns into heavy heavy snow. It wasn't cold enough to snow, but it's been raining and it's a little bit chilly so uh um so anyway that's actually worse than snow uh, wet know. wet and cold is no. worse than snow no 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 nothing almost that that's not worse than snow snow is pretty <laughs> bad i don't like snow all right i'll take i'll take chilly and it's not that cold actually it's like it's the, snow you can have fun in yeah it's like the mid- wet and cold all you do is get wet and cold no. No, snow is useless. Snow is is snow. Snow below three thousand feet is just pointless. I don't get it. All right, I, don't I mean, hell, you can fly an airplane through snow and not get anything on you. Okay, I'm tired talking to who two guys who used to be my good friends, but they're. <laughs> I'm I'm agnostic. Well, I'm not agnostic. I'm like, I, I'm agnostic as far as you're being in snow. Okay. My agnostic <laughs> friend is <laughs> my agnostic friend it. is uh, Jeb Burnside, <laughs> who's talking to us from somewhere near Sarasota, Florida, where it's unlikely. The snow. Er, ergo, my agnosticism. Yeah. How you doing, uh, Jeb? What's going on? Doing fine. Trying to stay dry. It's as I say, it's been raining here. Yeah. Um, yeah. Um, yeah. But it's to... but it's cold. It's it's you know it's like it's not cold. You told 90, me earlier. 90, the it's ninety five outside. Ninety five freaking yeah. degrees. All right. Yeah. Yeah, okay. it's like it's, it's, one of you is getting stuff that's seasonal, the other one's not. No, we're waiting on that first good cold front to come through instead yeah. of the one that stalled on the panhandle yeah. and has been dumping rain on us for like three weeks. Well, speaking of nor'easters, I mean, you have guys, you guys, you haven't had a good good hurricane in in years and years. Knock on well, wood. Well, right? knock wood. No, we haven't. Um, and obviously, that's a great thing. the The season runs through the end of November, and. Um, and we'll see what happens over the next couple of months. Certainly, there have been major hurricanes that have occurred, but uh, looks like we skated through another one. I, you know, there's this bone in my head that says, thanks to climate change, um, <laughs> the the uh, the Hurricane Alley is is going to shift north. Yeah. Well, it, I mean, I don't know about Hurricane Alley on the East Coast. Did you see that hurricane? 
out on the I'm going to introduce my other friend in a moment I promise I won't forget um, that hurricane you, you that, have more than one friend yeah that Pacino that's, that's newsworthy in yeah episode. I know really uh, what was that that Pacific hurricane that actually came on shore in the southwestern United States and uh, oh yeah which yeah, you just kind of yeah. don't ever see that that's just that was they weird fi- they finally got rain in, in Southern California I know and and that was because a hurricane actually came on shore in the Baja oh, and then man, tell me it's not true headed you, northeast you, you mean it does rain in Southern California, yeah, it does, uh, yeah. and that's that's like, not what the song says. We've that's, we've gone through two bad AM uh, radio staples from the seventies already. In I this know, episode. really, and that's, we're not uh, even. Yeah, this is just bad. We Let just, me get this out of the way before I forget. Uh, that's my other, you know, somewhat good friend uh, who can have all the <laughs> snow that I can send his way is uh, Dave Higdon from Wichita, Kansas. How you doing, David? Uh, just doing lovely, thank you. I was in the comic shop today, yesterday, and I was commenting to the guy that I, I had been to Wichita, Kansas, right? And and a couple of the kids there said, "Kansas? Well, you go to Kansas? What's in Kansas?" Right? I said, "Kansas, the air capital of the world. Right? It's like they make Boeing's and 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 you know stuff there." And uh, um, they were kind of impressed. Uh, but uh, the as usual, the aviation business does a better job of promoting itself to itself than it does to anyone else. Oh, uh, okay. That's that. How are you doing, David? What's going on out there? Well, we've been uh, playing bob and weave with boomer weather here locally. Uh, while it's gotten boomer weather all around us, uh, we heard it off in the distance, but it wasn't even close enough for us to see the light change that could go with the sound. And, you know, I don't know, man. We had a downpour a couple of hours ago that may have come to a hundredth of an inch. Uh, okay. I mean, yeah. just, just, it, you know, it's bone soaking for five seconds. Ser- seriously. Yeah. And then it yeah. stopped. Yeah. And what I, is, what, yeah. I hate when it does that and just, just, you know, rain, don't rain, get it over with. Right. Yeah. 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 So, and, and we could actually use it. Uh, uh, it, it, when I go out, when I take the dog out and, and she, you know, does her little bit watering the yard, there are actually blades of grass that stand up and thank her. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, uh, dry. all right, airplanes, let's talk about airplanes. Uh, they are uh, remarkably, they're still recovering from this Chicago center sabotage thing. I don't know that it's all that remarkable. I think, uh, apparently this guy did some major damage. He knew what to hit, yeah. knew where to, knew how to do it. And so this is like about four or five days ago when we're talking. Um, so about what date? Let's see if we can get this. This was like over the weekend. I yeah. Thought. So, so, uh, a disgruntled employee, um, not in his right mind, obviously, I guess, obviously, um, snuck back into the facility, found exactly the right place to set a fire, um, that, that disabled a whole bunch of communications gear. Um, he then attempted to uh, to uh, kill himself um, and failed before he was well, captured. Well, he also he also did structural damage to some of the cabling, yeah, uh, and the fiber optics that connect some of the computers, uh, and damaged a bunch of uh, racks that the servers uh, hung along in, and set fire to a bunch of stuff. And then was uh, when they caught him, he was working on slashing his own throat. Which, frankly, I'm kind of going. How do you do that? Yeah, well, that's a whole other thing. But so, you know, so is it? I don't know where to go with this story. I mean, it's like, well, you know, it's a good thing that next gen is so far along and well developed. Otherwise, this would have been a lot worse. (laughs) Well, here's the thing. 
Here's the thing. Everybody gets a little hyperbolic about, oh, what should we have done differently? What should would he have seen coming? Uh, uh, why weren't we able to protect against this? And the bottom line is that there is never any protection for somebody that was approved through the, the, the normal process, found to be safe and secure and worthy of letting inside the security barriers, having a change of heart for some reason and showing up without posting it on Facebook, and without tweeting it and just kind of coming through the gate like on a normal day and then raising holy hell. Unless somebody out there has got a Ouija board that does a better job than mine does, this is going to happen from time to time because people change. David, 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 David. There are entire industries that have sprung up trying to prevent this sort of thing from happening. And and they'll they'll figure out a way or several ways to... uh, um, um, put in new safeguards and new equipment and um, new whatever and, of course, bill it all to the taxpayer. And someone will find some, you know, down the road, some other way to, to create some havoc somewhere. It's well, just a, it's, you're it's validating all just, my point. It's, it's just a natural cycle. And you're validating my point. I know. I know. I know. Well, I'm just the, you know, the, the, the equipment part, I grok. I grok that completely. And, yep. We will see infrastructure changes e- and redundancy ev- changes. Eventually, uh, they will find a way to plug all these holes. Well, and, and that's my question. I mean, we've designed a system. And then the guy will has- find out a new way to try to screw with it. Now, it doesn't mean it'd be successful the next time, but none of that stuff is 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 really good at stopping people with bad intent. It just helps mitigate the impact they have. Well, let's put aside for a second that that it was sabotage here. I mean, there was clearly, obviously, a bottleneck, a spot that could do. You know, is it is this a, is this system well designed? You know, um, shouldn't it be there, more distributed? Shouldn't there's it be always more? there's always going to be bottlenecks. I mean, the guy took out a whole room or or something like that. You could yeah. take out a couple of other rooms. I'm sure. I mean, it could have been <clears> a natural <throat> fire. I mean, exactly, exactly. Um, could be uh, you know a, a power outage or something, and the, and the generators don't crank and up. There there's has all been. kinds of yeah. There's all kinds of failures. Uh, scorpion. Oh, that's yeah. a whole other subject. Yeah. Yeah, but the combination of physical <clears throat> damage done to the hardware and the wired connections, wired fiber optic, whether they were copper or glass, doesn't really matter. The hard wiring part of it. Uh, that's not stuff that's so much subject to failure of technology unless the connection that make all that stuff work just fail on their own somehow like Jeb said lack of power or something uh, but this goes way beyond what I think they normally brainstorm for when they're trying to figure out ways to test the integrity of their system yeah well uh, yeah so what happened actually? So obviously, um, obviously, but but apparently, uh, O'Hare and Midway had a whole bunch of canceled flights. Um, did did aircraft just flying through the area get uh, inconvenienced as well? I mean, just people if they were just overflying Chicago and talking well, to center. That's the facilities that were primarily affected. That's what I mean. Oh, it's okay. the high altitude segments that go exactly. over Chicago. Right. Uh, all the rest of that stuff was canceled because they suddenly didn't have the 
capability or the capacity to handle what was overflying, out of which a whole lot of traffic was going to be coming down and needing to be uh, segued into the arrivals for Midway and, and O'Hare. Mm-hmm. And I don't think they had a good way of saying, okay, you guys we can talk to and you guys we can't. I think they lost the capability for all those people and had no way to pick, cherry pick. That's why all those flights in and out of those airports got canceled because that high altitude sector couldn't handle them making the trip in to start the arrival. Mm-hmm. Does that make sense? Yeah, no, I think it does. Yeah. Yeah, so. basically, basically, I mean, they, they didn't lose radar per se, but they did lose communications, as I understand it anyway. And all this is digital these days. There's, a, there's software-driven, uh, runs on servers, yada, yada. Um, I don't know exactly what computers were taken out, but my understanding is I mean, there's nothing wrong with the airspace, and, and the radars work just fine, but there's nothing right. that, that can allows the controllers to communicate uh, a with each other and with other facilities, or B with the with the airborne aircraft. So that airspace was essentially shut. That upper level, I should say, airspace was essentially shut down. Um, you could fly through there, um, you know, say above the Bravo and and below the floor of the um, of the Class Alpha. But you, I guess, you could fly through the Alpha technically, but you couldn't be there IFR. Without some <laughs> ATCs, yeah. so, you know, how, you, do you go no radar procedures in class alpha airspace? I, I you know, whatever. Um, so I, I'm sure the boys and girls at the Chicago Tracon had a wonderful week. Oh yeah, oh uh, man, yeah. Can you imagine? Yeah. You, oh. <laughs> yeah. you know. but uh, meanwhile, we, we, the, the boys and girls to them at, from time to time. Yeah, the know? boys and girls at, at O'Hare Tower and uh, Midway Tower basically got a couple of days off. A, a, on a slow day, on a yeah. slow day, yeah. you need one of those four-foot-long shoehorns for putting on mm-hmm. penny loafers without bending over to get a word in edgewise to talk to those people. Mm-hmm. And imagine suddenly the whole system goes mute. Sorry, I was working on that metaphor. It took me a second. Okay. Yeah, go ahead, J- Dave. Yeah. Well, not only does the system go mute between the controllers and the aircraft, but as Jeb noted, and I think this is what some of the popular media media didn't pick up on, between that en route sector and the ones adjacent, where a controller can call another controller and say, okay, I'm sending you over flight mm-hmm. such and such, and here's a strip. You know, with his flight data, where he's going, what his cruising altitude, what his route is. Bing. And the guy says, okay, I got it. And then the controller comes back and says, okay, contact such and such center at 123X-Ray Zulu, and off you go. And the pilot waits 30 seconds, or the second in command waits 30 seconds, keys the mic on the new frequency, and says, hello, here we are. Yeah. And when you can't do that... yeah. Yeah, so. Well, apparently, you know, so I'm sure, mark my words, this is going to be a future episode of the new television series Scorpion, with the, the, but it will also involve aliens and uh, I don't know. You're, you're presuming it's not already in the can. Yeah, right. I, you guys watched it. Yeah, you didn't watch the show, did you? I, we, we talked I, I about this offline. I, we talked and, about this offline. I did not watch it. What no. a disappointment. I, I was looking forward to that show because it was kind of like, you know, geeks, you know, save the world kind of thing, you know, and, um, and they and their, their pilot episode 
What, well, there's your problem right off. It's a that? fundamentally flawed premise. No, 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 no. Um, so they were going to. So the 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 yeah the pilot, and they made a big deal of the pilot episode. They they put a couple a couple different times. They said based on true life, you know, true stories, right? <laughs> um, well, you know, and so uh, and and the and the storyline in the pilot was you know that uh, some sort of computer mishap, a bug in an upgrade, um, caused um, um, what L.A. Tower to lose its radios, and as a result. There were 50 airplanes that were trapped in the air and unable to land. <laughs> I'm hollering at the TV. I'm like, hey, just land the airplanes. What the heck? Um, but it involved involved all sorts of computer hacking and driving well, cars really fast. And I I gave up on this show. I stopped watching. All right. About how 50, many episodes did you watch? Well, no, I didn't. I watched 15 minutes of one episode. All right. I'm told that the way they ah. finally solved the problem. All right. In episode one, the way they finally managed to re reestablish communications with an airplane that was trying to land is that they raced a car down the runway and ran a piece of internet cable between the car and the airplane in order to, I don't know, install a software upgrade. What? Yeah, apparently. Up upload a patch. I'm not exaggerating. I'm told I'm not exaggerating. That's what the story is. Well, you know, as the, as the movie series Fast and Furious has taught us, there is no problem that cannot be solved by driving <laughs> fast and running into shit. Yeah, well, you know, there you and go. You, need, you do need a Maserati. <clears throat> Yeah. Well, so, I, I, you know, fundamentally, I need one of those anyway. Yeah, right. Yeah, I, right, I don't. Right. I don't need it for ATC yeah, purposes. So, anyways, or Kawasaki H two or. Now, apparently, uh, this was based on a true story. We were, we were kind of trying to, you know, dredge our memories, and there was an L.A. Tower software-driven communications failure a bunch of years ago, and. And airplanes had to land other places and land. There was some issue. Uh, but it didn't involve 50 airplanes being trapped in the sky and having to drag Ethernet cable. Well, you know, you know probably the most realistic and serious treatment of this kind of issue was done uh, uh, in the movie Airplane. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So, well, you know. You know, we're going to, we're going to talk about this later on. But fortunately, fortunately, the FAA and our, our federal government is in the process of solving this whole problem because they are creating a next generation um, air traffic control system that will, you know, well, just you know, and, and you know, they will figure out ways to put on new layers of security and 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 fix all this stuff, and, and never again will this that kind of thing happen. Oh, yeah. You know, until the next time something similar happens, and then we'll you know spend millions of dollars and and figure out a way to plug that hole. And you know, here we are. So, That's well, fr fr friend of mine, pilot guy that I, I I flew to a meeting with him on Saturday. I got a little time in a PT twenty six, and what 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 a nice airplane, roomy roomy. Uh, anyway, his suggestion for, you know, precluding a repeat of what happened in Chicago Center's uh, facilities is that they simply build the building and all the cases out of the same thing in which, in which they exactly. encase flight data and cockpit voice recorders. Yeah, all right, okay. Just, just build the airplane out I of that know. stuff. Yeah. No, yeah. he wasn't kidding. He says weight's not a factor. He said, you know, the, the, the bleep is already heavy. They already have all this shielding that has to go in for EMP protection. Uh, 
you know, and they've already got all these other security protocols in there. Yeah, Why not just encase all the stuff in the same kind of material that the black boxes go into and make it impossible to get into so that your only way through it is to have redundancy for redundancy for redundancy so that the instant something fails, you unplug it, put a new one in, move on. Yeah. Yeah, well, the, the EMP shielding thing is of, of, of uh, ever-increasing importance, of course, because when a, when a nuclear explosion occurs in the upper atmosphere and knocks out all electronic devices, the first thing I'm going to want to do is go flying. Yeah, right. Yeah, no. No, no, no. Yeah, yeah. I have the solution. One word. I have the solution. Here we go. You ready? Uh, truck bed liner. Okay. It's Mythbusters. Oh, gosh. Mythbusters has proven it. Anyways. Um, well, uh, just remember all those airplanes out there that have no electronics, no avionics, and what do they call those things? Uh, magnetos. Yeah, yeah that's yeah. the so, ticket. Anyways, they're still going to work. We're going to talk in the second segment here about how uh, Next Gen and ADSB is going to solve all the world's problems. You've, you've been trying to do that segue for 20 minutes. Yeah, now. no, no. I'm, I'm teasing. This is a teaser. That's this a segue like whose batteries already yeah, have. Yeah, hey, listen, on a more serious note, before we take a break here, um, I, you know. Um, <laughs> Jerry Jerry Mock uh, was was the first woman yeah. to fly solo around the globe. A very very cool thing. Uh, Jeb, can you tell us a little bit about that story? Well, I, I can try. Um, she uh, was a self described flying housewife. I, I, something to that effect. Let me let me pull this up. That's exactly right. Flying housewife is how she described herself. Um, when did she, she describe herself that way? It was like some many years ago, like the 60s or 70s. Well, like Jerry Mock um, became famous, well-known, uh, um, um, celebrated for, for whatever reasons you want to call them, back in um, um, the, the mid-60s. Mm-hmm. Um, she flew around the world uh, a Cessna 180. Mm-hmm. It had been outfitted with some additional fuel tanks. So low. What were then, you know, some advanced avionics. Uh, the airplane itself is like 10, 11 years old uh, and spent uh, 30-something days literally flying that airplane around the world. Not only was she the, the first woman to do it, I think she was the first person to do it solo. She certainly was the first woman to do it solo. Mm-hmm. Uh, and um, there's her, the airplane, uh, uh, a Cessna 180, white with red. Uh, November 1538 Charlie is in the Smithsonian Institution at the Udvar Hazy facility out at uh, Dallas Airport in Washington. Um, just a, just an incredible story. Um, she just, just kind of decided she, she enjoyed flying. Her, her husband was a pilot, and that's where she kind of got the bug and, and um, decided, hey, let me, you know, I want to I fly long distance. I want to do this. I want to do that. And um, um, they were just planning to do this, and then all of a sudden, somebody told her, "You know, no one, no woman has ever done this before." Um, and including Amelia Earhart. Amelia Earhart was lost in the '30s. This is 30 years later, mm-hmm. in the '60s, and still no one had done what Amelia Earhart was trying to do. Well, and Amelia Earhart wasn't trying to do it solo. She, she, that's true. She wasn't trying to do it solo. <clears throat> but uh, the whole thing conjured up a lot of memories. Mm-hmm. Uh, of and um, you know, I don't remember exactly. Well, there's the um, um, let's see, twenty nine days, eleven hours, fifty nine minutes. 
23,103 miles um, from Columbus, Ohio, back to Columbus, Ohio. Set a world speed record for that class of aircraft. I'm sure that's probably, I don't know, maybe it has been beaten since then. Um, of course, you, it's not hard to set a world speed record in that class of airplane when you're the first one to have ever done that kind of thing. So anyway, um, then she went on to set some other records in a, in a Cessna 206. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know where that 206 is, but um, uh, here we are um, um, celebrating her life. Um, sadly, um, the news came earlier this week that she'd passed away. Yeah. And uh, I forget, um, let me find that browser window. Uh, yeah. Uh, she was 88 years old. You know, in the list of her accomplishments yeah. and, her, and her first, but beyond that, she was a really nice lady. Yeah. Uh, was lucky enough to get to meet her and, really? and, and spend time with her several times over the years. Uh, and, uh, you know, she retained a certain level of modesty even among continuing to live on some of the accomplishments that had, uh, you know, to, to be highlighted and, and known for the accomplishments that uh, she etched into aviation history. And just a really nice lady. And uh, any of us should strive to do just a fraction yeah. of what she accomplished. And, and- you know, talking about, um, well, she was the first woman to do this, first woman to do that. How many of us have done anything uh, close to something like that? So, you know, whether she's male, female, whatever, um, quite prolific, quite uh, uh, quite the adventurous, uh, and um, sad to see her go. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, and she did all of this stuff in five years, basically. Yeah. Yeah. 64 to 69. uh I uh sorry to hear of her passing. Uh she was a, a a lovely lady and she was one of the first people that made me really appreciate the potential of the Cessna 180. Mm. So Geraldine Jerry Mock. Very cool. Very cool. Hey, we're going to take a break. We'll be back in just a couple minutes. The members of the Uncontrolled Airspace podcast are participating as private individuals. Their comments do not necessarily reflect the views of the various organizations they work with. Also, anything you hear on this podcast that sounds like advice on aircraft operation is obviously very general. You should always consider your own situation, remember your training, and fly the airplane. But you knew that. Hi, this is Jack. We've said it before, and it bears repeating, that maybe the most pleasant surprise of doing this podcast all these years has been meeting our listeners at fly-ins and just wandering around at airports. You talking with us and sharing your aviation experiences has helped us broaden our knowledge and enjoyment of flying. Thank you. And I'd be lying if I didn't say that we also appreciate the financial support we get from our listeners. For information on how you can make a donation to this podcast, see the Uncontrolled Airspace homepage and the box in the right-hand column labeled Tip Jar. It doesn't need to be very much. Just 10 or $15 over the span of a year is a big, big help. So thanks for listening, and please make sure you track us down and say hi at the next fly-in. So, eight years we've been doing this podcast, and I realized uh, somewhat to my moderator 
striving for a dramatic conflict, you know, um, uh, you know, dismay that uh, Jeb and Dave agree on almost everything, um, a great many things they agree on. But one thing that, you know, I can always count on is... Where does he get that? ADSB. Where he's going with him. ADSB. All right, here we go. ADSB. Um, so, you know, long-time spell, listeners... Spell that for me. ADSB. Long-time oh. listeners of this podcast will know that uh, we maintain what we call The List, which is uh, a place where we uh, kind of throughout, the, in between episodes, we accumulate subjects that we think might be interesting to talk about. Um, this week on the list, um, there were like, and usually there's like, you know, one, right? There's one story about a particular subject. This week, between the three of us, we've posted something like five different stories on this particular subject, and that is um, the, the latest on ADSB, uh, the, uh, the next-gen uh, uh, ATC program here. Um, and so let's see if we can figure out what's going on here. Um, as best I can understand it, the uh, FAA decided that they did their part, and now it's time for us to do our part. And so they were going to hold a summit, and uh, they were going to call a whole bunch of big players into some room and say, you know, you got to, like, get your acting gear and install this gear in your airplanes. Um, other organizations have said, time out, time out, wait a minute, FAA, you, you haven't really completely completed your part of the bargain either. So I, I don't know. Is that a fair fair description of what's going on here? There's a lot going on here, and, yeah. a lot, and a lot of it is blowing snow. No. I, 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 know, I know you're shocked by that. Uh, yeah. it, which which yeah. is not temperature dependent, you understand. Yeah, That's right. I know, right. That's right. That's right. Um, I don't even know where to start. No, well, on, one uh, level, uh, on one level, the FAA uh, is, is saying that it's going to have this call to action summit. Put out a press release. Uh, the date of this summit uh, is set for October 28. Um, it's not clear where it will be. Let's let's look at uh, what the press release says. I don't trust that site. All day session will be held October 28. Doesn't say where, but um, probably at FAA headquarters or something like that. So that's that was something that they that the FAA itself announced on September 18. Um, then uh, three days later, um, I'm sorry, seven days later, on the 25th, uh, well, a few days later anyway, reported on uh, by OPA on the 25th, seven days later, um, the in DOT, the Department of Transportation, the FAA's parent agency, the uh, Inspector General of the DOT, comes out with a fairly lengthy report basically saying um, that I'm sure my, our listeners are going to be shocked by this statement, that uh, there are f- profound problems associated, associated with the 2020 mandate and the FAA's modernization program. That's, that's according to AOPA. Mm-hmm. Um, but um, there are delays, cost overruns, and technical problems. I, anybody who's paid any attention to the FAA, as, as Dave and I have for going on 30-plus years... <laughs> I was just shocked, yeah. shocked to their toes yeah. that so. there would be delays, cost overruns, or technical problems in any kind of uh, major modernization program of the air traffic control system. So what's, what's what, yeah, I don't yeah. know. David, what, what's your take on this whole thing? First off, I, I don't believe, and I live under a fairly active air traffic center gateway, 
I do not believe the sky is falling. Okay. Uh, I do believe that there are some significant issues that need to be ironed out with ADSB and next gen overall. One of the things that is plaguing ADSB's potential right now is an inordinately slow adoption rate among the uh, oh sh- hi Charlotte right Charlotte's gone you got to pause me yeah no it's Charlotte she's like no, Charlotte any number of times I know, right. yeah. Charlotte is the most lovable um, uh, uh, dog I've ever met. I yeah. swear. Uh, yeah. Uh, a, a little bit, a little bit. You know, I mean, Charlotte's not not a, a puppy anymore. No, but, she's not a puppy, and she's not uh, a shrinking violet. Either. No, 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 no. Yeah, she's uh, she she will assert herself when yes, she wants to. Yeah, so, uh, and apparently, she was sitting with Dave there in the uh, in, in Dave's little office, and she decided it was time. And uh, David, are you back yet? No, David's off helping Charlotte. He's and, uh, so ADSB, Jeb. I don't. I don't know. You know. So well, the the the. the I mean, uh, is there anything new here? Is this just the? Did the FAA just decide we're going to try and push the issue here, and we're going to pretend like we're done, and 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 try and shift all the responsibility onto somebody? There's else. a lot of stuff going on here. Yeah. Um, let's let's wait for Dave to get back. All right. Sorry, sorry about that, guys. She, she. Uh, managed to unlatch the door and was gone. Okay, wow. that's all right. because a, a dog <laughs> showed up outside the uh, okay the door and she was asleep inside the door. And when she woke up, that's the first thing she saw was it sniffing right there outside her door. Yeah. And it's like, F- you, yeah, really. A cu- couple of things going back to this ADSB thing. What yeah. the I, what the IG is saying. Um, one is they haven't. Although they've the FAA says you know we've done. We put in all these ground stations and whatnot. Um, the IG is saying that maybe there's another 200 or so ground stations that need to be installed. We're not sure yet. Um, but the major thing going on is, is da- one of them is, is as Dave alluded, um, um, the, the users, be they commercial or non-commercial, um, aren't um, equipping with the necessary hardware um, in the with the um, uh, alacrity that uh, the FAA and some other people would like to see, um, the users on the other side of the coin are saying, "Well, you know, we we still are not seeing a whole lot of of benefits to us from uh, equipping this. The airlines are probably the ones with the greatest uh, leverage on the FAA right now, and the kinds of benefits they're talking about are." Um, more efficient uh, um, departure and arrival procedures, for example, into into crowded terminals, um, self spacing, um, <clears throat> so, some things that a few years ago might have been considered pie, pie in the sky, probably at this stage still should be considered pie pie in the sky in the sense that the procedures for doing these things simply have not been developed. Um, we're six years out from the, uh, the 2020 mandate, and there's still a lot of work that needs to be done. The flip side of all this is for the, 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 other, the other users, the non-commercial users, um, 
we're not even going to get to participate in some of those advanced procedures the FAA is developing. We're going to be stuck um, just requiring an upgrade in our equipment to access airspace that we're already accessing, that we can access right now. Right. Um, so, yeah, there are some definite problems with the cost-benefit analysis when it comes to um, older aircraft, uh, non-commercial aircraft, and, and the need, uh, supposed need, to access certain airspace. Um, I'll shut up, and I'll let Dave talk now. Well, but let me just, let me just, a lot of people seem to be very, very excited about the um, the weather and traffic information that they can get through the ADSB. Well, system. now that's, see, that's ADSB-in. Right. And that's not mandated. Right. And but, that's but, where the most benefit comes for the most users in general aviation. Uh, that being folks whose aircraft couldn't really support the investment of a collision avoidance system and a weather data link system and maybe a lightning detection system, uh, services which you can get for, for free for the cost of, well, I don't know, what did your Garmin receiver cost, Jeb? Seven hundred, seven eight hundred bucks. Yeah, yeah. The GDL thirty nine is what I, cre- I use presently, and it was off the shelf um, retail MSRP, whatever, eight hundred dollars. Uh, and that's a very good point. That um, one of the, well, two of the benefits are supposed to be the TISB traffic information system dash B broadcast for broadcast, and the uh, <clears throat> flight information system FISB uh, broadcast. Um, and those services, for the most part, are out there, and they, they, for the most part, work. There are they have limitations. Yeah. Um, and I'll, I'll, if we want to continue to peel this onion here a little bit, we'll get into some of those limitations. Um, well, and some of the limitations depend on adopting the equipment exactly that are part of the mandate for ADSB out. The, tra- the traffic limitations are uh, especially uh, involve, exactly yeah involve. You're only going to get the maximum benefit from TISB if you're uh, an ADSB out uh, certified aircraft. Uh, and that's all well and good. So I grok all that, et cetera, et cetera. But that's by no means, by no stretch, um, still going to include all possible traffic. Just as we have now, there are going to be gaps. There's going to be sailplanes. There's going to be uh, right. powered aircraft without transponders or, or electrical systems, for that matter. And there's going to be aircraft that have equipment failures that are not going to show up in, in your TISB feed. There's yeah, going to be a never- lot more of them if you have ADSB out certified. Um, than uh, would be the case if you don't have ADSB out. There's going to be a lot more traffic displayed, but, but that's and that's all well and good, and that's readily understandable. My recent experiences with the Nextrad uh, haven't been all that favorable. There's been a lot of you know kind of drop data and um, some other issues with some of this, and this includes um, you know looking at this data on a, on several cross country flights recently, and I'm. <sighs> It's, it's on par with the XM service. In other words, XM wasn't perfect either. It's Nextrad. Right. Um, there were some data dropouts. There's always, with, with whatever system involved here, there's always going to be uh, latency. Uh, the time between um, uh, what, what actually happens and the time you see it on your, on your screen can be 20 minutes or so on, nominally. 
Uh, and that's, you know, a, a consideration also. But that's going to be the case whether it's ADSB or, or some satellite-based system that delivers your, your NEXTRAD data. My problem has been lately that some of this data just gets dropped out. And, and what there is that comes through is kind of garbled. Now, I don't know if that's ADSB. I don't know if that's the platforms I'm using. I don't know. But I'm seeing some of that, and I'm using non-certified equipment. So yeah, okay, maybe I should uh, uh, be be satisfied with what I've got. Well, the uh, upside so far of next gen for GA pilots, as far as I can see, uh, and I'm not counting ADSB in, uh, 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 but from equipping with the kind of GPS that it takes to satisfy an ADSB out uh, uh, requirement uh, puts the aircraft in line to use a bunch of runway ends that at a at a level comparable with an ILS without the, an ILS receiver being down there and some other runway approaches that are non-precision but Far more precise than the old VOR, NDB, uh, DME stuff that uh, most of us learned on. Uh, and right now we have more runway in served by LPV, lateral precision with vertical guidance approaches, which look on your screen like an ILS. Then we have actual ILSs in operation. Uh, but the real downside of the l- slow adoption issue is... It's not giving people the opportunity to start to use some of what the FAA has succeeded in developing, uh, like RNP arrivals and those LPV and other uh, GPS-based WAS approaches. Uh, but it's also kind of compressing into a, a dangerously small time frame uh, the window for people to equip uh, and I think that there's still an expectation out there that, yeah, they're going to twiddle their thumbs anyway because they know the FAA will cave on an extension, which so far they've said no, no way. And you know, it's hard not to uh, it's hard not to understand that attitude because there have been so many issues like this in the past mm-hmm. where the FAA has ultimately granted an extension, whether it was. Uh, Stage two retirements or upgrades from stage one uh, to some of the later stuff to come along. But I don't think, like one friend of mine does, he expects them to go the way of what, would, what do they call it? MLS. He thinks next gen is going to get up to the edge and then going to get abandoned and us all fall back on the old system. Uh, at 2019, and I think that's delusional. Yeah, there yeah, was that, there that, was that, that legendary sigh. Go ahead, Jeb. Yeah, that that is delusional. Um, Dave, I don't know. You, you're old enough. I don't know if you were involved in in um, um, powered certified aviation. I know you were involved in hang gliders and whatnot back in the day, but back when the um, the first uh, mode C uh, transponder requirements were put into place, and um, the ceiling, or I think it was twelve five or, or fourteen. I forget what the what the altitude was, 
and then you know requiring them in in the few uh, uh, terminal control areas TCAs that were available. That was not um, long after San Diego, right? It was um, well, mode C's were in in place um, and being transitioned to before San Diego. Okay. Um, and this was San Diego, I think, was 78. Yeah. Can you guys tell recall. us what you mean when you say San Diego? There was a mid-air collision um, involving a Skyhawk and, I believe, a 727, David. Yeah, yeah. Um, over San Diego. Um, it was a case of mistaken identity. The the crew of the 72 um, had been pointed out, the 172, as traffic. They called the traffic inside. In fact, they were looking at a different airplane. And the the accident airplane hit them, um, in a very tender spot. Basically, mm-hmm. anybody who's who uh, has seen this this image will recall it immediately. It's a oh, it's an yeah. Im- image of a seven twenty seven. It's almost a a plan view image of the airplane as it as it's going down. His nose is pointed down about seventy five degrees or so. There's a flame. Uh, clearly visible on uh, one of the wings as the airplane is going down. That is the accident we're talking about. Everybody and, and, aboard. And that this, was a real cusp. That was a turning point. That was a, a landmark accident, as a lot of people would say. Um, everybody aboard the seven two died. Everybody, both pilots uh, aboard the Skyhawk died. There may have even been some casualties on the ground. And that's when they started um, to really lock down the that's, what now that is was, known as class, class Bravo space. Yeah, that was a catalyst. Now, the, the punchline, of course, is the Skyhawk crew was uh, squawking and talking. The airliner crew was squawking and talking. And basically um, what the FAA did was to expand um, requirements for um, and expand the, the coverage of the very kind of airspace in which this mid-air collision occurred. Uh, putting aside the ironies thereof and whatnot, um, the, the, the expansion of Mode C requirements uh, in the aftermath of that accident uh, went into effect fairly quickly. Uh, yeah. maybe, maybe in the next year, there was an NPRM process, um, and uh, uh, it was vociferously opposed, but it went into effect anyway. Um, the creation so there's, of what was then known there's, as TSAs and now are Bravos. Well, now are, now are Bravos. The TCAs were, were already in effect. They, they tightened up the, um, the requirements in them um, and, and expanded uh, requirements for Mode C in the TCAs and expanded requirements for, for Mode C elsewhere. Um, that didn't happen overnight. The, the regulations went into place you know, kind of sort of overnight. But the equipment, the equipage, didn't happen overnight. Yeah, it and, took a and, long time. And pop, yeah, popping in uh, um, a mode C transponder is a lot simpler than popping in uh, ADSB for most aircraft installations. So there's two morals here. One big moral that I was, I'm trying to point out is that January 1, 2020 can come and go. And there will still be opportunities to do ADSB installations. There will still be people who have been putting it off and putting it off. Oh uh, yeah. Who, who who will say 2020, 2021, 2022? Uh, yeah, okay. It's finally it's time to go ahead and put ADSB in my airplane. Um, point one. Point two. Even the regulation that we're talking about, which mandates the January one, 2020 
uh, uh, deadline for ADSB in certain airspace says, you know, ATC may authorize deviations from this regulation on an as-needed basis, and words yep. to that effect. Um, so, yes, there is this mandate that, yes, there is a hard deadline. No, you should not expect the FAA to, to change that deadline. Yes, people will, will equip their airplanes to comply with that deadline. Yes, other people will not equip their airplanes to comply with that deadline. They will get deviations. They will choose not to fly in that airspace for a period of time until they've been able to equip. The final point, you know, I'm, people are going to start throwing stuff at their iPod or the radio or something here in a minute. My final point I would make is um, it's not at all clear to me. I, I certainly get and I, and I support what, what a lot of people in the industry are saying about, you know, we don't have enough capacity to, to install ADSB in all of these airplanes all at the same time. The capacity does not exist. I agree. It, it's not there. Yeah. Um, the other thing, though, that's going on is a lot of pilots, a lot of airplane owners um, are... Um, sitting back and saying, geez, you know, I got almost five years here before I have to have this. And just looking at the, the progress that has been, the technical progress that has been made on the iPad or the, the other tablet that I use in the cockpit, five years is an eternity. Mm-hmm. And they're kind of saying, well, you know, they're scratching their head saying, there's going to be a better deal. Come along sometime between now and 2020 that I can avail myself of, that I can put in my airplane. And to a great extent, they're absolutely 110% correct. Oh, yeah. uh, Dave, you and I both, I'm sure, are aware of several products that um, haven't hit the streets yet that, that that show a great deal of promise to not only making the decision to upgrade a, a, a far simpler one, perhaps even a cheaper one, but thirdly, um, um, easier and, and a more capable uh, change to your avionics suite. Well, just just three or four years ago, if you wanted to meet the ADSB out mandate uh, as quickly as possible after the rule became final, you were looking at ten, twelve grand easy in equipment plus installation costs. Uh, just in that time since the rule became final uh, companies have come up with one box solutions now they don't give you all the WASP GPS uh, IFR capability that an actual WASP GPS navigator will but they will fulfill the mandate for you on both of the out frequencies supply you with a certified GPS reference signal uh, WASP GPS of course and and an antenna to hook it to for about 3500 bucks plus installation. Mm-hmm. It, that's just so far. And we're going to see that get simpler and cheaper even farther down the line. Outfits like Trig Avionics uh, make an inexpensive, relatively speaking, uh, transponder that uh, can be plugged into most of the GPS navigators that meet the TSO. Uh, and boom, you've got your solution right there. Uh, and if you don't want to do it, the transponder will still be a better transponder than what you probably have in your airplane. Uh, lighter and lower current draw and higher wattage and so forth. But greater, greater reliability. Greater reliability uh, and take up less space. 
Uh, and this kind of stuff is going to continue to roll out. The paranoia that I think some in the FAA and some in the industry uh, suffer with, and Jeb pointed it out, is the installation capacity. Uh, there's going to come a point here where there's going to be a hell of a queue that you're going to have to get into right. or spend extra to circumvent. 2019 is going to be quite a year. Yes, it will. Well, I figure <clears throat> the queue is going to start to establish itself in 2018. Yeah. Realistically. Yeah. Yeah, we need to move on. Well, let me ask and, you two questions. My, 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 my final point on that, and, and kind of a reminder, is that that queue will extend past January of 2020. It'll extend into 21 and 22 also. Yep. Um, it, that's just the nature of the beast. That's just the nature of, uh, of uh, the way uh, equipment mandates for general aviation have worked in the past. Yeah. Yeah. So anyways, well, let's move on. And no matter what you see at the summit... In two years, you'll see something different. Exactly. Okay. Exactly. Yeah. Well, I want to hear about more, more about this summit later on. But okay. Uh, yeah. Moving on. So we'll talk about this more, obviously, because we've talked about it since. Oh, yeah. Thank. For, for eight years, we've been talking about next gen, so it's not going to end soon. Um. So, uh, looking at a, a story from uh, uh, NES, NECN.com, the New England Cable News Network, uh, up here in, in New England, um, there was a, a, a small plane crash in Connecticut a few days back. Uh, headline, Pilot Hurt in Small Aircraft Crash. A pilot is in the hospital with non-life-threatening injuries after crashing a small aircraft in Lebanon, Connecticut, on Sunday afternoon. Um, so, uh, I guess I have a couple of questions here. Um, none of these stories that I can find um, actually identify this aircraft. Uh, David, I'm wondering if you recognize it from the pictures. Are you able to identify this aircraft? Well, I, I recognize the configuration, but the configuration could match yeah. a half a dozen different models. Right. David, I, I, I refresh your browser. I added a link to another story which has a different angle, on the, and, and I don't know if that will help or not. Um, refresh my browser. Hang on. Let me pour some water on it. Ah, there we go. You know, the first thing that comes to mind is a Kolb flyer yeah. model. So, but that's kind of not. I mean, and this is. I'm. I'm. I'm very happy that the pilot um, is is well and uh, and and came through it okay. The airplane was kind of banged up, kind of bent up um, from the pictures we're seeing here. Um, yeah, it's definitely got some wrinkles. And uh, the stories are a little bit vague. It sounds like what happened here was that this aircraft was taking off from a private strip there near near or in Lebanon, Connecticut, um, and then something happened that caused it to come down hard. Um, a couple of the stories, which actually may all be from the same source material, refer to the engine stalling, um, which oh yeah, yeah, yeah that's the, always the, fatal. The legendary you know. engine stalling, which could well be actually the engine stalling or it could also be of course the wing stalling and the reporter getting it wrong so this is kind of you know that kind of a story and uh um, set this aside for a second. My question about this is the last graph in the one that I happen to be looking at here, which is the NECN.com story. Federal, the Federal Aviation Administration, it says, is not investigating and will leave that up to the local airport, according to the state police. And I sort of understand what's going on here, but I was hoping you guys would educate me here. There is a threshold below which the FAA, which is to say the NTSB, do not investigate flying accidents. And and I was just, what is that threshold? Is this because it's an ultralight that NTSB doesn't get into this? Usually it's a 
it, it kind of keys on some of the same stuff that keys NTSB investigations, and yeah. that's A, whether anybody goes to the morgue, or B, anybody goes to the hospital, or C, whether the damage uh, is, quote-unquote, substantial or rises above a certain threshold. Now, when you start to get into Part 103 stuff, uh, the FAA didn't do a lot of investigating a Part 103 stuff for years unless it was fatal or sent somebody with serious right. malfunction to the hospital. Is, quote, unquote, ultralights, right? That's the ultralight rule. Yep. One, one seat, 55 knots, five gallons, day VFR. Right. Oh, and so, 100, uh, 254 pounds, empty weight. But you're saying NTSB does occasionally investigate ultralight accidents now? Uh-huh. Okay. And they actually focused on them for a year back in the early 80s to determine for their own purposes whether there were any public safety implications of the ultralight rule that they should pay attention to as a matter of policy. And I think basically the way it settled out was that unless somebody dies – or it impacts something other than the aircraft and the occupant itself. I'm sorry, the air vehicle and the occupant itself. Uh, it, it's not on a radar screen. There's no regulations for. There's no regulations dictating design standards, structural standards, airworthiness standards, uh, pilot training. None of that's regulated. Uh, so what would you invest all those resources in when you've got plenty of other GA accidents to investigate involving stuff that actually has paperwork? Right, right. So anyway, so that's interesting. Uh, uh, Jeb, any final thoughts before we move on here? No, I, I, I you know, state, local uh, law enforcement or, or whomever, they can do all the investigations they want. Yeah, yeah. Um, the FAA... Um, only really investigates aircraft accidents uh, for two reasons. One is to determine if there's any enforcement problems. Mm -hmm. And secondly, when, it's been, when they've been delegated the task by the NTSB. Mm -hmm. um, generally speaking, <clears throat> the NTSB will investigate all fatals, um, uh, even of... Um, even uh, ultralights. Even ultralights, excuse me, yes. Um, if it's not fatal... Uh, and especially if it's just an incident, uh, which does not involve serious injury, um, the uh, aircraft, uh, I mean, the accident, I should say, is likely to be only investigated by uh, the FAA. won't even rise to the, to the description, uh, the definition of an accident, uh, as, as the NTSB defines it. And um, then it's, you know, it's up to anybody who will, anybody can investigate anything at any time kind of thing. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so. So. Okay. No, it's, I just was curious what the threshold was and, and what the difference was, because we're always hearing about NTSB investigations, and, and uh, this one, not so much. Yeah, yeah. Well, one of the things in the second, uh, second article intrigues me is that they, they identify it as an ultralight, and that's what it looks like. Uh, and they uh, say that the guy had non-life-threatening injuries, expected to survive, etc., uh, then, according to the FAA registry, the pilot registered the plane in 2007, and the registration expired in 2012. I saw that. That was interesting. Well, and I'm, I'm betting money. Yeah. I'm betting money that 
somewhere along the way when he found out he was going to have to go through this process now every three years under the FAA's new internationally accepted registration rules, and he found out that he really didn't have to go through that at all. He just decided to stop doing it. Yeah. Well, and, and of course, the, the re-registration process, which basically involves returning a postcard, is so very onerous that uh, um, uh, I can understand why no one would ever want to put up with it ever again. <laughs> well, that's a whole other story. Shout-outs. What do we got here? Uh, Shout-out to, uh, I'm looking at a story from uh, generalaviationnews.com. Uh, hundreds flock to Zenith's hangar day. This is very cool. Uh, the uh, It's cool when hundreds of people flock to any aviation activity, all right? Um, this, this is doubly cool because uh, the Zenith, of course, is the aircraft that was the one-week wonder at EAA. And in, and in fact, I believe that's that aircraft that, I think it is, that, yeah. uh, that attended yeah. this uh, hangar day um, in, in Mexico, Missouri. Mm-hmm. Uh, which, nice little town a couple of really great restaurants oh really okay i thought you were gonna say bars because (laughs) not that you would know about the bars in every town in america one of them was actually both oh okay uh, hundreds of people showed up on Friday. I'm reading from the story. Hundreds of people showed up on Friday, September 19th, for the pre-hangar day activities, and hundreds more came on Saturday for demo flights, factory tours, and encounters with Zenith aircraft kit builders, factory personnel, and the curious. So, yep, there uh, it is, the one-week wonder in all its splendor. Yeah. So, uh, big grats to uh, to uh, Zenith and to the one-week wonder and to the uh, uh, to the folks in Mexico, Missouri, for uh, their successful. Uh, uh, you know, it just goes so, to show you, you know, and not that Zenith wasn't a popular design in the first place, but uh, yeah, uh, EAA's done them a little bit of a favor here by selecting it as the uh, as the one week wonder. And uh, Jack, you, you and I both pulled rivets on that, right? Yeah, we did. Yeah, yeah. Did yeah. you ever? <clears throat> do you ever stop and wonder? Did I do it right? Yeah, I, I, I do that all the time. <laughs> I do that is, all is, the time. Yeah. So yeah, uh, I, you just, you know, if the airplane ever has a problem, you're like. Oh God! Please, not let it be the oh, rivet I pulled. Not my, rivet. not my, not please. my rivet. Please, not, the not my rivet. Not the firewall. I was in the fire. My my rivet was in the firewall, and uh, so uh, I'm not gonna say. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> I'm not gonna say. Big congratulations to Zenith and their hangar day. That's yeah, uh, and and, to, and one more time to EAA for for this whole project. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Other shoutouts. What do you guys got? Uh, yeah, real quick and dirty. Uh, to my good friends at the old Beach Aircraft Corporation who worked on the uh, Starship 2000. Happy 25th anniversary of its service entry. I know. 25 years ago today, October 2. How many are still flying? There's two, one or two or something like that? Three or four, I think. Yeah. Uh, A couple of them out of the country. All of them... Uh, valued greatly by their owners. Yeah. I mean, to the point of STCing eight upgrades as a group so that they can keep the puppies uh, functional. Right. And and not because they faded or wore out or, or had problems. is because Beach actively took them out of service and destroyed them, right? They bought back all of them they could buy back. They didn't want any of them out there. There were a few holdouts who right. said, it's too good an airplane, too easy to fly, and too comfortable, no. Yeah. And, Good for them. You know, the, uh, some guy by the name of Rutan out in California that may have had a distinct and distant involvement in this airplane's design was one of those people who said no. 
Yeah. Yeah. And still yeah. is, as far as I can tell. As yeah. far as I know, that's true. All of this was helped along by the fact that the vast majority of the starships placed in the service were not sold by, by Beach slash Raytheon. There was kind of a lease arrangement. Yeah. And um, um, at one point, the company decided, yeah, we don't want these people operating these airplanes anymore. So they took them back off lease, which made the whole thing a lot easier. At, at one point, it was hard to get hangar space at remote airports within 100 miles of Wichita because Beach had so many starships squirreled away there at various <laughs> stages. Uh, you know, they were trying to, trying to salvage some of the parts and some of the systems, and then they were going to chop up the fuselages, and, and they just didn't want them all. It didn't look good having, uh, you know, over a half a dozen of them sitting out on the ramp at mid-continent. Uh, yeah. So, yeah, yeah Starship, you, great airplane. You got to wonder how proud the um, the. You got to wonder where the people who, who dreamed all this up got the, got their MBAs. Yeah, yeah. So, very cool. Well, it, yeah. it was uh, thirty. It'll be thirty-one years ago this yeah. month that the Starship was introduced to the public at uh, an NBAA convention, I believe, in Dallas. It was Dallas. I was there. You were there, probably, also. Uh, I had just gone to work for AOPA. I was the low man on the totem pole in the office where I worked. I did not Uh get to be there. But uh, we got really up close and personal and familiar with the Starship in later years, uh, as some of yeah. my old friends at Beach will attest. Only, I t- only but time what I- a wonderful airplane! Yeah, only, only time I ever got Pilot's close. Airplane. Only time I ever got close was there was one. Uh, we were thrilled one day when there was one parked on the transient ramp at Palo Alto, and yeah, yeah. and we all went out and walked around it and go, "Ooh, wow, this is really cool." And it was really cool. So, anyways, let all me right. throw in another quick shout out. Yeah, go ahead. Uh, the National Aeronautic Association and the Air Care Alliance uh, awarded their Champion of Public Benefit Flying Award uh, last week to the Experimental Aircraft Association's Young Eagles program. And uh, and one of the pilots uh, is going to receive the Distinguished Volunteer Pilot Award, uh, one J.J. Quinn. Uh, who's been flying Young Eagles for years. Now, this is a 12-year running program that's approaching 2 million kids that have been flown by volunteer pilots. So uh, congrats to EAA Young Eagles for yet another laurel in the wreath of uh, their public efforts. Also very cool. Yeah. All right. Well, that's great. Uh, uh, time to stick a fork in it, I think. Wow. Um, yeah. Uh, thank you, guys. That was, that was half-hearted. I appreciate your taking the time. Uh, Jeb Burnside. Uh, Jeb's a uh, freelance uh, aviation writer and editor, serving as the editor-in-chief of Aviation Safety Magazine. Been working on anything fun, Jeb? What's going on? Uh, working on uh, the, uh, I guess it's November issue of Aviation Safety. i uh, got a very interesting article on ditching. Uh, I have another very interesting article on instrument departures and, mm-hmm. and how to go about uh, evaluating the, the them if you have options and uh, a bunch of other neat stuff so i'm I'm looking forward to this one hitting the streets looking forward to getting it done of course but uh, uh it's gonna be fun yeah cool and where can people find you on the internet uh aviation safety magazine.com uh jeburnside.com's uh, uh 
supposedly personal website. Um, and uh, sometimes I'm on the Facebook and sometimes I'm on the Twitter. Yeah. And Dave Higdon is a uh, aviation photographer and aviation journalist and the U.S. editor for London's World Aircraft Sales Magazine. David, what have you been working on? Well, first off, that's now London's Av Buyer Magazine. Uh, we're going to have to fix that. Okay, yep. Yeah, that, that, that was a name change that came along in the last month or so. Uh, and uh, right now, the big focus is uh, getting the decks cleared to go to Orlando in a couple of weeks for the mm-hmm. National Business Aviation Association meeting. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it, it have some new stuff coming out in uh, avionics news, I believe, about touchscreen systems. So, Yeah. Okay. Uh, and where can people find you on the Internet? Well, for avionics news, that would be AEA.net. For Av Buyer, formerly uh, World Aircraft Sales, that would be AvBuyer.com. Uh, and got something in the works for downstream with my uh, good friend and uh, longtime colleague, Jeb Burnside, for Aviation Safety Magazine. Yes, indeed. We, yes, indeed. we can't talk about that. We, no, we okay. can't talk about that. I, I, sh- I should say also that uh, I also contribute to AEA, and you can find some of my stuff on AEA.net also. In fact, I think I've got the cover article this month. Ooh. So. You're cool. Yeah. Very cool. Very cool. Hey, and I'm Jack Hodgson. I'm a private pilot, a freelance writer, and a new media producer. Uh, you can follow me on Twitter at uh, twitter.com slash Jack Hodgson. You can learn more about me than you really want to know at jackhodgson.com and aroundthefield.net. Uh, big thanks to Jeff Ward for his help with the show notes and in the forums. Uh, thanks to Mike Morgan, Royce Earl, Jeff, uh, Jim Goldman, uh, and to the many other listeners who have created the UCAP disclaimer clips. And don't forget, you can check out the rest of the UCAP website. You can chat with us directly and with many of your fellow listeners uh, in the uncontrolled airspace forums uh, and uh, also see who's doing what in the new ratings, web page of fame, all that and much, much more at uncontrolledairspace.com uh, David, are you going to say something? Key to long life is airtime because as you know, time spent flying is not subtracted from your lifespan so go fly. Bye bye. And that's enough talking. Let's go flying. So easy for him to say that. <laughs>